This is episode 306 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life, so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. Today's articles are Get Home Bag Supplies, The Basics, Outdoor Survival, Skinning, Butchering, and Cooking Wild Game, and Conflicted, Worth the Risk, What Would You Do? Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey everyone, before we get started, I'd like to let you know that this episode is being sponsored by my new ebook, The Preparedness Community's Guide to a Microbiz and Increasing Your Finances. It's time to finally advance your preparedness goals. Get the ebook and join the forums. Go to microbiz.biz for more information. All right, guys, let's go ahead and jump right in to our first article. It comes to us from survivalistprepper.net. And the article is entitled Get Home Bag Supplies the Basics. A get home bag is an, is an important kit that you should have. And so, uh, you know, this is one reason why. I definitely want to cover it here in the podcast. So let's go ahead and get started. Get home bags versus bug out bags. A get home bag and bug out bag are very similar and very different at the same time. A get home bag is meant to get you to your supplies. A bug out bag means you are leaving your main operating base. A get home bag doesn't need to have all the supplies that a bug out bag needs, but you do need to think about the five areas of preparedness when building one. If you haven't read the first post in this series, please do so. It explains the five areas of preparedness and the rules of threes. Personally, I use my bug out bag as a get home bag as well. My bag is almost always in my car and I don't travel that much anyway. I'm not going to go as far as to say you don't need this in the beginning because you should have your bob and a car kit. But if you need to put anything off until later, this is it. It's up to you on how you do this, especially when you are starting out. If your budget doesn't allow you to build a get home bag right now, make sure you take your bug out bag with you everywhere. This will be a general list, but you need to tailor it to your needs, depending on how far away from home you are on an average and the weather conditions in your area. If you live up north, you might not need everything that goes in a bug out bag, but you might need some extra clothes and items to keep you warm. So get home bag contents, a map of the area. Not only do you need a map of the area you are in, you need a map or maps of the area you plan on going, which should be home. You might have the same maps in your car, but for the price of a map, you might as well have a couple of extra in different places. You might think you don't need a map of the area you live in, but what would you do if the route you were going to take was blocked off? Signal mirror and whistle. Sometimes you might not want to be found, but sometimes you might need some help. If your car breaks down or you are stranded because of weather, you will need some way to signal for help. A whistle and a mirror might come in handy. And guys, whistles are just really great uh, to have in a bunch of different kits. So if you can get a couple of those, those are just good to have. A folding knife. Just like the folding knife you have in your bug out bag, these are convenient and take up little space. Having the right tool for the job is important and sometimes a big knife is just too big. 
a fixed blade knife. A fixed blade knife will stand up to heavy use, whereas a folding knife will eventually break. If you need to chop anything, you will want a sturdy, dependable knife to do it. Hey guys, if you are new and you're just kind of like, you don't, uh, you're you're looking at some of the fixed blades and survival knives out there, uh, definitely, and and you're looking at, man, they're very expensive. I mean, because you can very easily, you know, spend uh, $100, $200 on on a nice survival fixed blade knife. Uh, If you're looking for more of a budget uh, you know, a budget knife, but one that is just really great uh, quality. I would recommend the Schrade SCHF9. It is an awesome little uh, fixed knife. Well, it's actually not little. It's, it's just an awesome blade. And right now they're uh, on Amazon for $37.22. Uh, it is a great little knife. It has uh, twelve over 1,200 reviews and like 4.5 stars. I link to it on Ed That Matters on the sidebar, and uh, it's definitely worth a look if you are looking for a survival knife on uh, on a budget. All right, so let's go ahead and keep going. A multi-tool. You never know when a multi-tool might come in handy. From opening a can to sawing a small tree branch, a multi-tool comes in handy more than you would think. It can get pretty expensive buying a few multi-tools and a bunch of, bunch of knives, but there are lower cost tools you can buy that will do. I have my Gerber multi-tool that I carry every day and a few lower cost multi-tools in my bag. And just be careful. I remember getting a a multi-tool that uh, just was very cheaply made and uh, very easily the the blade will just come back on you and kind of scary there. So you got to always be careful uh, you want to buy something that you know can stand the test of time, uh, but you know I understand the the whole trying to have more than one and, and put these all in your you know your bug out bags and your get home uh, bags and you know all the, the you know your EDC and all that different kinds of things. So uh, just be careful with uh, the cheaper versions of of some of these knives. All right, so the next one is a fire starting kit. A fire starting kit includes a few things, and it really depends on you. You can put this in an Altoids tin and include char cloth, a ferro rod, cotton balls, and waterproof matches, or you can keep them separate. Just make sure you have a few ways to start a fire. Now, uh, I've talked about this before. Definitely um, a fire kit. You know, going to a dollar store, a lot of the times you'll find little pouches and and, and uh, hard hard cases that you can uh, you can buy for really cheap, and then you can use that to be your fire kit. And put that inside of your your bug out bag or your get home bag, but definitely you know you should have a fire kit. Flashlight. Make sure you have multiple light sources and make sure they don't all run on batteries. It can be a small pocket sized flashlight, a solar lantern, or even glow sticks. It gets pretty dark at night no matter where you are, so make sure you have this area covered. 550 paracord. You might not need 100 feet like you do with your bug out bag but you can never have enough paracord. When you get paracord, you want to make sure it's 550 paracord. 550 has six separate strands inside the paracord casing, which can be separated, giving you even more cordage. 550 is also much stronger than regular paracord. Extra batteries. Make sure you have an extra set of batteries for everything in your bag and then add some more because you never know how long your batteries will last in different conditions. And then duct tape. 
There's always a use for duct tape, right? Duct tape can be used in a pinch to close a wound, patch a hole, or as a fastener. You don't need an entire roll of duct tape with you, though. You can do what I do and wrap a lighter with it to save room. This is one of those you only miss it when it's gone items. A first aid kit. Keep in mind what might cause you to need your get home bag. It could be a car accident that left you injured or you just escaped a mob of angry rioters. This can be as simple or complex as your skill requires. Include bandages, tape, dressings, prescriptions, and over-the-counter medications and something like quick clot. Make this kit as good as you can with the room that you have. Food items. You might not need as much food with you as you would bugging out because hopefully you will be home in 24 to 48 hours. You will need a minimum of 1,000 per day and even more depending on how active you are. Foods like peanut butter, jerky, granola bars, and survival bars are lightweight but high in calories. Remember, you can go three weeks without food, so packing food is not a necessity in a get-home bag. But having food will keep your morale and energy up. So I definitely like those, you know, the the, the peanut butter, the jerky, um, having trail mix, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, definitely, we've talked about that extensively in even bug out bags, you know, uh, if you're less than two days away from your bug out location. Bottled water. I don't keep bottled water in my bug out bag because of weight, but I do have bottled water in my truck. And if I had to leave in a hurry, I would make sure and grab what I can. I also know where I can get water on the route I would take. In a get home bag, you might not have that option. Make sure the bottled water is sealed and doesn't burst open, getting everything in your bag wet. A water filter. Three days without water is the maximum the body can go without water, but your body will be affected way before that. Making sure you have a way to make any water you find drinkable is critical. As I said in the last post, I recommended the Sawyer Mini. Water purification tablets. Redundancy is key. These take up very little room and are less expensive than a filter. Make sure you have multiple ways to clean water. There are a few different types. Just make sure you use them correctly. Shelter. Tarps, emergency blankets, trash bags, and small one-man tents could all be added to your get-home bag. Consider your geography, weather, and time of year when you are adding shelter supplies to your bag. And extra clothes. Make sure you have a change of clothes in your bag. This includes a couple pairs of socks, shoes, underwear, a knit hat, and shirts, This is not necessarily so you have clean clothes to wear, but clothes to change into if your other clothes become wet or damaged. Make sure what you choose is comfortable and the shoes you pack are good for walking long distances. As you begin to personalize your get home bag, you need to take into account how far and how often you travel every day, where you would need to travel on your way home and what you might encounter on your way home. You also need to make sure you are ready physically to handle this challenge. It doesn't matter how prepared you are if you can't walk more than a mile. It will take you longer than you think to get from point A to point B. The guest post, Prepping and Unrealistic Expectations from Robert, goes through this exact situation about what to expect when you are bugging in. The next post in this series will be all about automobile travel kits. Unlike get-home bags, these are critical regardless of how far you take prepping. We spend more time than we think driving, and we might as well be ready if something were to happen. All right, so 
good article here. And if you don't have, you know, well, let me go back to this last thing that Dell said is you really need to you know consider how far you're traveling and, and all of that kind of stuff, right? Um, for me, I work, you know, driving distance 10 minutes away from, from work and actually a little less than that if all the lights are working. But so it wouldn't be that, that big of a deal for me to get home from there. Uh, there's other times that, you know, I travel a little bit further, but pretty much I'm still staying on my side of town. So I could get home in a couple of hours, you know, and I really don't need to depend on a lot of or, or a big kit to get me home. But if I was traveling somewhere, else, you know, like far away or, you know, for instance, when, when we go up to the country, you know, I'm carrying, I'm, I'm carrying, you know, equipment with me. Uh, one of the one of the pieces that I do carry is a, a nice sized first aid kit, uh, not just you know a smaller one. I, I take a nice sized one because I want to be able to have you know the important things I need if we get into a car wreck or you know we're up there and something happens, right? But you really need to think about your situation and and where you're you know what you're doing, what what your normal day is like, but then also be prepared. You know you could have like a bag that stays, you know, at your front door, or your back door, whichever one you exit uh, to get into your vehicle, uh, you know, to be able to, if you know that you are, you don't want to leave it in your vehicle. Uh, well, you don't want to leave it to where people can see it. Um, one of the things that happens that I know that people have, ha- it's happened around here is people will leave a backpack or, you know, even school, a school bag. And they, you know, people break into it just for that because they think there might be a laptop in there or something like that. So you got to be careful about that. If you can, if you have a, a vehicle like a, a car and you have a trunk, definitely. If you if you want to keep some supplies in there, maybe you you have a bag that you just, you know, hey, I'm going to leave this in here, and it's supplies that the weather's not really going to affect. There's not food, water, that kind of stuff in there. Definitely, you know, in your trunk, or if you have, uh, you know, a truck. Where you can put it underneath, uh, you know, one of the seats. That would be something, something great. But you really need to look at your situation and determine your needs. Everyone's going to be a little bit different. You know, the the house, the the housewife who stays at home and and uh, you know, chauffeurs kids around to you know to to games and and school and different things like that. And uh, maybe they homeschool, whatever. The needs for a get home bag might be a little bit different than someone who is a traveling salesman, right? So uh, all those things to consider. So this is over at survivalistprepper.net. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Like always, there are some links here uh, to some other articles that you might be interested in. And then, of course, the items are here that you can come take a look at. Hopefully you are getting that get home bag together or you have plans to get one together uh, as you're able to. All right, guys, our next article comes to us from survivalpedia.com. And the article is entitled Outdoor Survival, Skinning, Butchering, and Cooking Wild Game. And I'll be honest, I almost didn't read this one because it is, you know, I am uh, reading to you or you're listening to the process of butchering and skinning and, and, and all of that. But I realize also that there's a lot of people who learn through you know audible they're they're audible um, learners and so uh, definitely you know understand that and so 
I know that I am, and I listen to podcasts a lot, and I listen to sermons, and I listen to audible books. And so, you know, really when I started thinking about it, I'm like, you know what? No, I am going to read this one because there's someone out there that I'm sure, or more than just one person, but there's people out there who this will greatly benefit. So I would also encourage you to, you know, so you can get like a visual. You might want to go to YouTube and search you know, like rabbit processing and or deer, you know, and whatever, skinning a deer. And uh, you can get some great videos there on how to go about doing it if you've never uh, had anyone take you hunting or you've experienced it firsthand. And so I also want to say that I'm going to link to an article that someone sent to me a while back uh, for Ed That Matters. I mean, it's actually the really it's an older article. It's called Free PDF Rabbit Processing. And so this was a group that uh, they actually, uh, you know, they, they would meet up together and they would create resources and um, like, again, back in the day, and they created this PDF on how to process a rabbit. So they sent it to me and said, Todd, please share this, you know, out with Prepper website. And so uh, I'm going to go ahead and link to that if you want that free PDF on, uh, on rabbit processing. So uh, that'll be in the show notes. So let's go ahead and start reading this one. One sign of an experienced survivalist is that they have multiple plans and methods for each and every one of their survival needs. One simple example of this is survival instructors who collect fire starting methods like some people collect baseball cards. You never know when the method you are counting on will be unavailable or fail, so it's a good idea to have several other options you can use just in case. Within the prepping community, we see this manifest and how people deal with their need for food. At the beginning, we all start out with building a food stockpile. But as time goes on, we tend to start looking at various ways of supplementing that stockpile, such as raising our own food, foraging for edible plants, and hunting. For those of us who are hunters, it makes sense to hunt for food. But what about those who are not? Granted, anyone who can shoot a rifle accurately can kill an animal, assuming they can find one to kill. That's the hard part of hunting and the one that will give most post-apocalyptic hunters the most trouble. You can forget about the idea of using feed corn as bait to bring the deer right into your sight picture. You're going to have to go out and find the deer. The other thing you're going to have to know how to do is turn that dead animal into usable meat. Once you kill it, killing an animal is one thing. Butchering it is another thing entirely. If you don't do that correctly, the meat could be tainted and dangerous to eat. Proper preparation of game meat is critical. Improper preparation of any game meat can lead to sickness and even death. This is because, like us, all animals have a large number of bacteria living in their bodies, mostly in the gastrointestinal tract. As long as they are contained there, they are safe. But if they contaminate the parts of the animal that you are going to eat, it can be extremely dangerous. The other thing that we must take into consideration is that as soon as an animal dies, it starts to decay. Once again, this is caused by the bacteria in its body. So the sooner the animal can be prepared and cooked, the better. There was time when meat was left to quote-unquote age without refrigeration. This was literally allowing the game to partially decay before cooking it. The idea was for the bacteria to partially break down the tough fibers of the meat making them softer and easier to chew. But if those same bacteria aren't fully killed in the cooking process, they can be dangerous to you. 
The preparation of small game and large game for use is essentially the same. I'm going to talk about this from the viewpoint of large game, but the mythology stay the same. The only real difference is how much meat you get off the animal. The American Indians and other indigenous groups used all of the animal, utilizing many of the internal organs as food or for other purposes. Here in the United States, we don't do that. Although there are still places in the world where many parts of the animal which we don't consume are still consumed. While this is possible for the sake of this article, I'm going to skip over the use of these organs. However, if you have dogs, they might enjoy the heart, liver, and some of the other organs. Finally, take care of the skin of the animal, as the skin itself is valuable. It can be tanned, converting it to either leather or furs for making clothing, shoes, and even shelter. This process starts at the point of skinning the animal, so you don't want to skin it carelessly, destroying the hide. Alright, so let's talk about cleaning and skinning an animal. Once you have killed an animal, the first thing you want to do is clean it. This consists of removing the internal organs in the body cavity. Removing these organs reduces the potential for the meat to become spoiled, while also reducing the overall weight of the animal if you have to move it. You will need a sharp knife for skinning. One with about a 4 inch blade is ideal. If the blade is too long, it will be more difficult to handle, increasing the chances of cutting something that you don't want to cut. If it is too small, it will be easily turned aside when hitting bone. A gut hook makes the process somewhat easier, but is not required. You may also need a bone saw, although that is not absolutely required. It is a good idea to wear disposable rubber gloves while cleaning and skinning the animal to avoid getting any contaminants on your hand. Again, this is not a requirement, but it is recommended. Start by placing the animal on its back, propping it there with rocks or logs. The rear legs will need to be held apart, which can be done by tying the legs to available trees or by propping them apart with a stick. Of the two, tying the legs is preferable. Unless you tie the stick to the legs, there is a good chance that it will move at just the wrong moment. You're going to start working from the tail end of the animal. If you are hunting in normal times, you may need to keep the genitals attached to the animal to prove its sex to game wardens. Be sure to know what the law in your state says about this. In a survival situation, this will be unnecessary, so you can start by cutting around the genitals and removing them. Be careful not to cut any deeper than necessary so that your knife doesn't pierce the intestines. Split the skin of the animal down the center of the belly. If you are not keeping the head to be mounted as a trophy, you will want to slit the skin all the way to the jawbone. This is where the gut hook comes in handy as it allows you to do a very controlled cut that won't run too deep. If you don't have a gut hook on your knife, place your index and middle fingers on either side of the knife blade with the sharp edge of the blade towards you to act as a depth gauge. Peel the skin back from the muscles below so that the hair doesn't come into contact with the muscle layer below. Next, you'll want to cut through the muscle layer that covers the stomach. Once again, use the index finger and middle finger, sliding them under the muscle layer and pulling it up so that you don't cut through and into the intestine. You will want to cut along the center of the stomach from the cut you made to remove the genitals all the way to the breastbone or the sternum. When cleaning a dough, cut to the side of the udder rather than the center of the stomach. 
If you are not planning on mounting the head of the animal as a trophy, cut through the cartilage of the breastbone so that it can be spread apart. With the animal's body split open, you will have access to all the organs. Next, cut around the anus so that it can be removed intact. Tie a string around it to prevent any contents from spilling out and contaminating the meat before moving it from its position. Once tied off, pull it out of the body cavity. Reach up inside the body cavity and cut through the esophagus and windpipe, as close to the head as possible, being sure to cut them through entirely. Grab the two together with both hands and pull down hard, pulling the entrails down into the midsection of the animal. There may be some connective tissue that holds the entrails in place, most likely along the spine. If that won't tear, use your knife to cut through it. Keep in mind that your bullet or arrow will most likely have caused damage to the internal organs, causing bleeding inside the body cavity. You want to try and minimize the blood spilling into the body cavity as much as possible. This may require tying off particular organs. If there is a large amount of blood or other bodily fluids that spills into the body cavity, rinse it out thoroughly with water. At this point, the only thing that will be holding the entrails in the animal's body is the diaphragm, a thin layer of tissue just behind the lungs. Cut through this and then roll the animal on one side. You can pull the entrails out of the animal. If everything doesn't come out intact, you may need to roll the animal over on its other side to finish the job. With the entrails removed, the animal is considered cleaned. You will want the body to cool as rapidly as possible, so this will help slow the decomposition process. Cut through the center of the pelvic bone with your knife or a bone saw so that the hind legs can fall apart. Then prop the body cavity open with sticks to allow the body heat to escape. Typically, the cleaned animal is hung, allowing the blood to drain out. If you are planning on using the head as a trophy, this is done by hanging the animal by the hind legs. But if not, hang it by the head as this allows more blood to flow out of the body as well as making it easier to skin the animal. Cleaning birds. Depending on the birds you kill, you might not want to go through all the trouble mentioned above. While the same basic process works for birds, you can also remove almost all the meat from a bird without having to clean it. The meat in a bird is either in the breast or the legs, specifically the thighs. So rather than removing the entrails from the bird, you can remove the meat from the carcass. To do this, start by peeling the skin and feathers off of the bird's breast. With that removed, you can fillet the breast meat, much like filleting a fish, cutting the breast meat off the ribcage intact. The other useful part is the legs, which are attached to the spine near the tail. You can usually feel the pelvic bone and find where the thigh bones are attached to it. Cut through the flesh here, separating this joint and cutting the flesh around it. Be careful not to puncture the bowels in the process. All right, so let's go to skinning the animal. Compared to cleaning the animal, skinning is easy. You have already begun the process by cutting along the belly and starting to peel the skin back. All you are going to do is continue this process. It should be done within two hours of killing the animal while the body is still warm. In addition to the cut you have already made, you'll need a cut down the inside of each leg going from the center cut you have made all the way down to the feet. Cut through the skin around the leg just above each hoof or foot. Make one additional cut around the neck. If the head is not being kept as a trophy, this 
can, this cut can be just below the jaw jawbone. If it is going to be used as a trophy, you'll want to cut it near the shoulders. Set your knife aside and grasp the skin at the cut you made at the neck. Pull downwards hard and the skin should peel off. You may need to use your knife in a few spots where the skin does not easily come loose from the body. While this article does not deal with tanning the hide, if you are going to tan it yourself, you'll want to remove as much flesh and fat from the inside of the hide as possible. This involves stretching the hide on a frame, then using the blade of your knife to scrape off this meat and fat. Alright, butchering game animals. Small game normally aren't butchered, but instead are cooked whole. About the only time they might be butchered is for use in a soup or stew. In that case, the process is mostly about removing as much meat from the carcass as possible. Care is not needed as you aren't trying to maintain the integrity of any particular cut of meat. But the larger the animal, the more care you will probably want to take in how you butcher it, especially how you treat the better cuts of meat. These are considered better cuts because they are tender, tenderer with less sinew than the other parts of the animal. We include the back straps, tenderloins, and the roast associated with the hindquarters, the rumps, round, and sirloin in this group. Everything else is often turned into ground meat, sausage, and jerky. Where you start your butchering process will depend a lot on how you have the animal hung. If it is hung by the head, you'll want to start with the back legs. If it is hung by the back legs, you'll want to start with the head. Either way, the process is the same. It's just the order that changes. The body of a deer or other large animals basically consists of six parts from a butchering point of view. Four of those parts are the legs. Then there's the body, which consists of the ribs and back and finally the neck. The legs of many animals are actually easier to remove than you would expect as the joints is held together with nothing more than tendons and cartilage. And so there is also a graphic here that uh, breaks down uh, the different uh, pieces or categories of meat uh, within the deer, right? All right, so there's actually more than one way of doing this. One easy way is to cut through the meat, exposing the joints where the legs connect to the pelvic and shoulder bones, then to cut those joints to free the legs. In this manner, the legs can be cooked whole if that is what you want. Your other option is to actually butcher the animal, turning all the usable meat into steaks, roast, and ground products. A lot will depend on what you need, what your need is, and where you are in a whether you are in a survival situation. You'll also need to take into consideration whether you have the means of refrigerating or freezing the meat to preserve it. If you don't, you'll probably need to smoke or jerk it immediately. To butcher a hanging deer or other animals, start from the rear legs and remove the rump, round, and sirloin roast first. These are the bulk of your best cuts, which you will probably want to use as steaks and roast. Then remove the backstrap and tenderloins, cutting them away from the backbone. While those cuts are the best ones, everything else is still good meat that you'll want to use, rather than trying to butcher the remainder the same way a butcher shop would. You will probably be better off removing the meat from the bones without a bandsaw to cut the bones, making ribs and chops will be extremely difficult. To debone the animal, seek to cut entire muscles free from the bones, rather than cutting the meat into sections. This is generally easier as the only thing holding most of the meat to the bones is tendons. With many types of game meat, such as venison, you'll want to trim the meat, removing as much of the fat as possible. 
deer fat does not taste good, so you won't want the fat edging your steaks and roasts. Cooking game meat in the wild. There are countless recipes for cooking game meat online, but most of those are assuming that you are going to have the services of a complete kitchen to work with. I'd recommend finding some you'd like and printing them out so that you'll have them available to you in a survival situation. However, if you're in a survival situation, chances are that you're going to have to do something with any game meat you kill long before getting it back to your home. Unless you are fortunate enough to live just a few miles from some prime hunting ground, you're probably going to be traveling several days to get to hunting grounds and another several days to get back home. With that in mind, you'll need to process and preserve your meat before making the trek back to your family. I'm assuming you'd cook at least some of your meat over an open fire and have a nice barbecue as a reward for the success of your hunt. But what I'm concerned about is the meat that you're going to take back home. Unless you preserve it, it won't be fit for your family's consumption. That means either smoking it or jerking it. In either case, you will need salt. This amazing substance is nature's preservative. Salt preserves by drawing water out of cells in a process called osmosis. When it does this to bacteria cells, it kills them. So salting meat is a very important part of preserving it both when smoking and with jerking meat. Smoking is excellent for larger cuts of meat, whether they will be eaten as they are, like roast, or whether they will be ground up to make cured meat, like sausage. Normally, the first part of the process is to soak the cuts of meat in a brine so that the surface of the meat can soak in the salt. This might be difficult in the wild, but you can accomplish the same thing by using a rub. Mix salt and spices together and rub a thick coat of them on the meat. You will need to construct a temporary smokehouse in order to smoke your meat. That's actually not as bad as it sounds. Essentially, what your smokehouse needs to do is to hold in as much of the heat and smoke as possible. A simple box structure made of tree branches with cut branches hanging from them to form walls is sufficient. You can also use rescue blankets for the walls rather than branches. The smokehouse will need to fire inside to, or fire inside to create both heat and smoke. Use hardwood, hardwoods for the fire so that they will produce more heat and not need to be replenished as much. To create smoke, either use green wood or soak pieces of the wood in water before putting them on the fire. And so you know, one of the other ways that I have seen uh, this kind of done in the wild is kind of creating a teepee. Uh, where you can uh, you you would put some kind of tarp over a teepee structure that would smoke you know where the meat is hanging on the inside of it, and so uh, you know kind of picture a small teepee with a fire at the very bottom of it. All right, so most of the smoked meats we buy today are merely cold smoked. That means they are smoked at a temperature of 68 degrees Fahrenheit to 86 degrees Fahrenheit. This imparts the smoke flavor, but doesn't preserve the meat. To preserve it, you need to use hot smoking, which means raising the temperature inside the smoker to 126 degrees Fahrenheit to 176 degrees Fahrenheit, and keep it there until the internal temperature of the meat is hot enough to cook it and kill any bacteria inside of it. In a wilderness situation where you don't have access to a thermometer, you can ensure that your meat is sufficiently smoked by smoking it for 24 hours. While it may dry out slightly, it shouldn't dry too much as the outside of the meat will form a tough coating that will hold most of the moisture in. 
Turning meat into jerky is actually easier than smoking it. Even though you have to cut it into strips to dry, these strips should be about one-fourth thick, one-fourth one inch thick and no thicker, thicker. Like smoking, the meat needs to be treated with salt. This is normally done through a marinade, but you can also use a rub on the meat, being sure to rub the salt into all exposed surfaces. The American Indians used to jerk their meat in the sun, which works well. All that is needed is some sort of framework made of branches to hang the meat on. You can speed the process up by using the same sort of framework over a fire, as the added heat of the fire will speed the drying process. One advantage of jerking jerking over smoking is the removal of so much water from the meat makes it much lighter. Typically, jerky weighs about one-sixth of the original weight of the meat, so you can carry a whole lot more meat back as jerky than you can as smoked meat. Alright guys, so it was a longer article, but a lot of good information and hopefully kind of piqued your interest there a little bit. Um, maybe if it wasn't even the butchering or the skinning, maybe it was you know the, the ability to uh, smoke meat if you're out in the wild, if you ever find yourself there or, or you know making jerky, uh, doing it that way. So, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of things there to consider. If you are again, if you're not familiar with skinning and uh, you're not familiar with, you know, butchering animals and things like that, I would recommend and you don't have someone who can take you hunting or where you can get that experience firsthand. Definitely, I would recommend that you go to YouTube and search out some of those videos and just kind of, you know, familiarize yourself with the process. You, you've heard it. And now you have it in, in your mind, and so you have a little bit of information to draw from. So now when you watch that video, a lot more of it will make sense, and so you'll see uh, you know, where, you, uh, you know, where, where it's kind of going in the video. Uh, there, I know that there will be some hunters that will disagree with some of the things that were said here when he was skinning, uh, skinning the deer. But uh, you know, for the most part, we get the, the idea, the gist of, of what we need to do. So that's over at survivalpedia.com. Uh, you know, there is a video here on uh, how to build a smokehouse, so you might want to go check that one out. All right, guys, for the Thursday podcast, we always read a conflicted scenario, and this one is entitled, Conflicted Worth the Risk, What Would You Do? And like always, uh, I'm going to read the scenario twice, and then you can either, you know, hey, think through how you would, uh, you know, how you would deal with that scenario if you were, you know, with what you know now about uh, survival and preparedness, uh, and you were thrust into that situation, what would you do? Uh, or you might want to talk it over with uh, a friend, or you might want to come over to edthatmatters.com and drop it in uh, in the comment section for this article, Conflicted, Worth the Risk. So let's go ahead and let me read the scenario. Remember, I'm going to read it twice. Your scouts inform you about a small-time kidnapper who is holding people hostage and engaging in human trafficking. The initial intel is that he has a force of four other men with him who are well-armed and dozens of victims, most of them women and children. It sounds like they would be an even match to your current survival group and your capabilities. As your group's leader, would you waste supplies and risk the lives of your group members to rid the world of such characters, or would you let them continue to prey upon the weak? All right, one more time. Your scouts inform you about a small-time kidnapper who is holding people hostage and engaging in human trafficking. The initial intel is that he has a force of four other men with him who are well-armed and dozens of and dozens of victims, most of them women and children. 
It sounds like they would be an even match to your current survival group and your capabilities. As your group's leader, would you waste supplies and risk the lives of your group members to rid the world of such characters, or would you let them continue to prey upon the weak? All right, so a conflicted decision there for you to make. Again, uh, if you want to participate in dropping your comments uh, you know, down into this article, come over to Ed That Matters. I'm going to link to uh, this article and all the other ones in the show notes. And so it's always good to kind of see different people's perspectives and see how they, uh, you know, how they would answer these conflicted scenarios. Well, everyone, that is it for episode 306. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Head on over to the prepperwebsitepodcast.com. That way you never miss another episode of Sweet Prepper Goodness. And take a moment to connect with me. I have a ton of ways to connect in the show notes. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.